Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. First of all, I want to let everyone know that I'm okay. Nothing's wrong. I know I've been a bit slower in dropping episodes, and I missed the last drop. I'll just say that life and the infinite list of spring projects, and also life, sometimes gets in the way. And if you're following my goals updates, update number 11 after the bumper at the end, incidentally, well, there are only so many hours in the day. I've done the math. That said, I want to thank all of those that were concerned about my well-being. Thank you, Brandon. Thus ends the list. I mean, come on, guys, I could have been in a ditch somewhere. I wasn't, but I mean, it's the principle of the thing, right? Anywho, the old saying goes, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times, hard times create strong men. And this, my friends, is the way of the world. The United States, the Western world, the enlightened nations, the wealthy countries, nowhere is immune to the societal cycle. What we've proven over and over again throughout all of history is the good times creating weak men creating hard times part. Unfortunately, the roller coaster doesn't always make it up the next hill, that being the strong men part. And that's when you see societies, empires, civilizations collapse. Don't stop looking for a beam to throw a rope over. I'm sure there's no problem. We had a slight weapons malfunction, but uh, everything's perfectly all right now. We're fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you? Now, on today's episode, first we'll truly be offensively strong, then we'll sow strength and reap weakness. So don't you dare even think about thinking about it and know that with greater power comes potentially greater losses of freedom. Uh, Now I'm going to need you to suck it up because here we go. If there's one thing the Logical Christian Podcast is all about, it's using more words than are necessary to make a simple point. But if there were two things that the Logical Christian Podcast is all about, it would be the too many words thing and then education. I'm here to help. That's all I'm saying. Now we know that one of the worst possible things we could do to anyone ever in all of time, in all of history, with an understanding of all of history and all bad, vile, evil things that have ever happened to any of the people of this entire world throughout all of that time, is offend someone. I mean, sticks and stones may in fact break my bones, but names and words, phrases, intent, unintended intent, etc. are literal torturous murder. I, your humble host, strive to be better than you, my less informed, less socially aware than I, listener, and display, model even, inoffensiveness. I think we can all agree on that. So to help, I want to give you some offensive words and phrases that uh, you should never use. And we know this is accurate because it comes from thesaurus.com. First, spirit animal. Some cultures believe in these silly things, you know, that they actually exist, and we shouldn't use their words for made-up foolishness. So, some alternatives they gave include, quote, Baby Yoda is my kindred spirit. Or maybe you like, quote, Pistachio ice cream is my raison d'etre. Or, quote, That piano-playing cat is my demon. Now, I'm not sure why demon is different, nor do I know why I'd ever use that word to replace spirit animal, but let's ignore those and move on, shall we? Next is ninja. Sadly, this is a case of cultural appropriation. You, my friend, are not a ninja, even if you are. I don't think you are, and you definitely can't use the word no matter what. Maybe instead, quote, you are a whiz with plants, or maybe, quote, He's a warrior on the field. Or I think we can all identify with, quote, That is one ace charcuterie board maker. You may want to turn your audio device down for this next one. We're going to use the N-word. That's right, Nazi. Now, thesaurus.com blames Seinfeld for the infamous soup Nazi for this one. 
But if you dare use this term in any way that doesn't specifically mean the German National Socialist Party under Adolf Hitler, you're no better than a dirty commie, minimizing the atrocities of the Hitler era. Instead of calling your father-in-law a Nazi, you could say, quote, my father-in-law is a cookie boss. You may want to say, quote, I go all authoritarian when it comes to the right way to put up Christmas decorations. You know, rather than the all-too-common, I'm a Christmas decorations Nazi. And maybe we can edit Seinfeld and state that this individual is now the, quote, soup absolutist. I mean, it just rolls right off the tongue. A few others. Don't say scalp unless you're speaking of the head skin. Otherwise, you know, you just speak of how you were robbed, although... Wouldn't that be appropriating the theft profession? Maybe say fleeced. Ah, although I'm concerned for not only real sheep, but also furries that dress like sheep. We don't want to use the word jip, because clearly that's a slang slur that slanders the proud Romani, Romani <clears throat> peoples known as gypsies. And finally, do not use hysterical this is just demeaning to women, since they're the ones that clearly are just crazy in the head. I don't want to use the H word. Yeah, this one is apparently sexist, I guess. Instead of saying, baby, settle down, you're just being a typical hysterical woman, like women always are, you'll want to say, quote, that was an intense reaction. <laughs> now, this one was just one site. If you really want to be inoffensive, go to Google and type in the search offensive words and phrases. And then you can spend the rest of your life learning how every single word in the American language is offensive somehow. And don't even think of using a different language. That's cultural appropriation, probably. And I don't want to hear you whine about, but that's my native language, blah, blah, blah. Just no, knock it off. But what happens when you fall into the inception of offensiveness? See, found on harbingersdaily.com, headline, UK government admits it was inappropriate to argue that the Bible is no longer appropriate in modern society. This article was written in December of 2022, and I'm not sure if I've had this in my queue that long or if I just found it recently. But we're going to back up one more article from this one and go to November 2022, also on Harbinger's Daily. Headline, Win for Arrested Preacher After Crown Prosecution Claims Parts of Bible No Longer Appropriate in Modern Society. So here's the background of the story. A 55-year-old cancer survivor from Swindon, you know, Swindon, it's a town of just under 200,000 people in southwest England, nothing. It's home to STEAM, Museum of the Great Western Railway. Ah, there you go. Now you got it. So this man, a veteran of the British Army's Special Forces, had the audacity to preach on Swindon High Street in November of 2022. Now I know you're already aghast. How dare he? But just wait. This gets much worse. Not only does this man consider, quote, preaching on the street and speaking God's truth to be an essential part of his Christian calling, well, this hate-mongering hate-monger who just enjoys mongering hate does it without a voice box. Yeah, I found a live stream of him telling his story to some others, and he was pressing on his turtleneck around the Adam's Apple region. Not sure what exactly he's got going on, but very quietly and gravelly he was telling his story. Apparently, that's what cancer took from him. And uh, whatever voice he has left, that isn't much. But like the terrible human being he is, he's using what little voice he does have to proclaim Christ. <laughs> Just wow. Now, apparently, on the day in question in November, I mean, keep in mind, 2022, not like this was the 1800s when this sort of thing was acceptable. <laughs> no, this was 2022. Well, on this day in question, he was preaching in part Genesis 1, and we all know what's in there. God made them male and female, and the institution of marriage is one man and one woman. <laughs> oh, how angry are you now? Well, not as angry as two women, apparently from the Isle of Lesbos, were uh, when they walked past holding hands. See, as they passed, this guy had the audacity to say, quote, I hope you are sisters, to which they instantly offended, 
proudly or pridely proclaimed that they were married, which, might I add, is a perfectly normal, beautiful, biologically confusing, procreatively limiting thing to do, and don't you say otherwise. Unfortunately, I wasn't there in Swindon at the time, or I was, but I was at the Railway Museum. It's hard to say, so I couldn't warn Mr. Hate, I mean Mr. Dunn, and he lashed out at them, quietly and calmly, that the Bible says that homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you're not going to believe it, but these two women, self-proclaimed thespians, or women who love women, I mean especially, especially love women, did not care about the kingdom of God. Nope, these Lebanesians took offense, and you would too when you hear that, as the Leonesians tell it, Mr. Dunn shouted at them, they will burn in hell. I can only assume it was the loudest, almost inaudible shout that these two librarians ever almost heard clearly. Well, that, sir, or ma'am, or they, them, that's hate speech. Now, Mr. Dunn claimed that he was just trying to, quote, declare God's truth out of love and compassion for the people passing by and listening, and further claims that these two planetariums were lying, that he did not threaten nor abuse them and didn't do anything disorderly, to which the police that were there interviewing him said, what? Could you, could you speak up, please? I, I'm just assuming that last bit. Now, his lawyers claimed that Articles 9 and 10 of the European Convention of Human Rights that grant the freedom of thought, conscious religion, and expression, that his opinion, strong as it may be, is protected, quote, even if these cross the sensibilities of the majority of the population. They further pulled out the sticks and stones defense, claiming that the simple act of speaking biblical truth does not amount to, quote, abuse. But as lawyers were not prepared for the rebuttal by the Crown Prosecution Service, or the CPS, when they said, Yaha, does two, does two, and then they plugged their ears saying, eh, eh, Can't hear you. Eh. <clears throat> the Prosecution Service claimed that the prosecution was both necessary and proportionate, which would be very similar to me working at McDonald's saying, look, I know you're on your way to see Dr. Now, but three chicken sandwiches, four Big Macs, a frap, two milkshakes, and four family-sized fries are definitely necessary and proportionate. And then ring him up. They went on to say, quote, there are references in the Bible which are simply no longer appropriate in modern society, and which would be deemed offensive if stated in public. And then they pointed at references in Exodus and Leviticus regarding, ah, dare I say it, slavery, and, and references to the death sentence. I mean, can you believe it? Just imagine what else might be in there. I'm glad now I never got around to reading it. Anyway... Despite the open-and-shut case that could have landed Mr. Dunn with a criminal record, the two Leviathans apparently refused to engage with the case after making the allegations. I wonder why. Mr. Dunn then gave a hateful statement of hate, a hatement, if you will. Have your airsick bag ready here, folks. I'm going to read the first paragraph for you. Quote, before I became a Christian, I hated people. I served with the special forces, and I made it my mission to learn how to best kill people. That was my job. But when I met Jesus Christ, he changed my heart, took away my hatred, and filled it with love. Jesus was the answer for me, and I believe the world needs to know and experience this hope. That is why I do what I do, to help everyone find the light of Jesus out of the darkness we all live in. Oh, just disgusting. Andrea Williams, the chief executive of the Christian Legal Center, who is Mr. Dunn's legal representation, in part said this, quote, the view from the CPS was that the Bible is offensive and contains illegal speech which should not be shared in public. Offense is an entirely subjective concept and is easily manipulated to shut down viewpoints that people simply don't like. Any suggestion that there is a right not to be offended must be strongly resisted. In today's democracy, we need the freedom to debate, challenge, and disagree. So back to our initial article, which we'll barely touch on, but it's where I started, so it's where we started. The CPS came out and said that it was inappropriate to make the argument that there were parts of the Bible that are, quote, simply no longer appropriate in modern society and too offensive to state and public. Now, they were sorry, but if those two libertarians hadn't refused to press their case, Mr. Dunn would have been prosecuted for hate speech because... 
he had offended and upset a member of the public. But they all dropped it. You know, <laughs> whoopsie, sorry, we're all good now, right? And it was confirmed that there had been no change of policy, that things were fine, and in the future, if something like this were to happen again, where people express their opinions and, and a disagreement ensues, well, they'll have to get the senior district crown prosecutor to sign off before they serve the offender. There, everything is fixed now. So the alleged offender who offended the others was apologized to from the offensive police for offending him when they claimed he offended others. Inception offense. In fact, it's offense all the way down. Now we look at this and we're generally taken aback by someone or some agency, a government, making the claim that professing yourself to be a Christian is offensive and not for public consumption. Now I think some discretion as to your audience should be observed. You may not want to tell the story of the Levite that cut his dead concubine into pieces and sent those pieces throughout all of Israel, you know, to little kids. Yeah, that starts in Judges 19, if you're curious. One of the oddest stories in the Bible. I think most people agree with that. But in general, we as Christians are offended when we're told that simply preaching the Bible is offensive. But look around. This isn't an isolated incident. In February 2021, a 76-year-old grandmother was silently walking and praying near a UK abortion clinic. Police asked her why she was outdoors during a mandatory COVID lockdown that worked oh so well. She said she was walking and praying. Mm. Well, the officer informed her that she wasn't in a place of worship, and that wasn't a good enough excuse to be outside and then accused her of protesting the baby murder mill, and she was arrested and fined. Eh, well, she challenged the arrest, and she won. In December of 2022, a woman was on the other side of the street opposite an abortion clinic, silently praying, in her own words when she was being questioned by the police, quote, praying in my head, while being near this clinic, meant that she was in a, quote, censorship zone, a bystander alerted police to tell them that this woman might be praying. Well, when she admitted that she, quote, might be praying in my head, the officers requested she accompany them to the station for some questioning. She politely declined the offer, at which point she was arrested for, quote, suspicion of failing to comply with public spaces protection order. But before you get upset, it only took a couple months, and as of last February, the charges were dropped. I mean, legally, she still has an arrest and a charge against her name, but, you know, silently praying, right? I mean, ugh. She's pursuing full cleansing of her record. But, but oh, no, some people never learn. She was arrested again in March, like just a few weeks ago, this time for silently praying in a, uh, in a censorship zone. In fact, looking at the two videos, it's the exact same censorship zone. I mean, come on, lady. Why can't you offensively, silently stand and pray somewhere else? <laughs> In January 2022, Finland put two Christian leaders on trial for hate speech when they dared to write and publish a pamphlet that explains the Christian view on sex and marriage. In March of 2022, they were acquitted, from what I can find, but in April of 2022, the prosecutor said, uh, not so fast, and appealed the acquittal. In the trial, in December of 2022, the prosecutor asked, quote, which order of justice will be upheld, that of the Bible or of Finnish law? Now, if that doesn't send chills down your spine, I don't know what will. The trial is currently on hold or on back order, I'm not really sure, to resume with the next hearings in August of 2023, you know, just eight months later. Now, what about closer to home? In 2001 and 2002, William Watcott in Canada was distributing flyers that spoke of the prohibition of homosexuality in the Bible. He was convicted of hate speech. In 2013, over 10 years later, his appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada finally came up and the conviction was upheld. They did not like the targeted language he used directly out of the Bible. Uh, it was hateful. In June of 2019, Pastor David Lynn in Toronto, Canada, was arrested for preaching outdoors in a community where a high number of LGBTQ individuals lived. Oh, the audacity of him. Now, let's ignore the fact that his ministry had divvied up Toronto into 22 districts, and it was just time for this district, not 
targeted any more or less than any other district. He live-streamed his preaching, and it can be seen that he was not hateful in his interaction with anyone, but hate was definitely spewing back at him. But real hatred doesn't matter. Only words matter, or more specifically, words used in a specific order, like ones you might find in the Bible. He was arrested for hate speech, even though he was calm and loving throughout, while being verbally and physically assaulted by those that apparently are the loving ones. And finally, YouTube in January of 2022 removed a John MacArthur sermon because they deemed it offensive. It was hate speech per their criteria. MacArthur, a solid biblical preacher out of California, dared to state a biologically accurate fact that you're either XX or XY. There's no such thing as transgender. But YouTube decided that their job is to monitor hate speech per their definition. Now, these are only some of the examples that are out there. We've in all of the countries that deem churches, whether inside or outside or wherever, non-essential during the pandemic, while deeming things like strip joints and casinos essential. Who said that fellowship as a body, like the Bible directs, was unnecessary and dangerous, but was okay with rioting and protesting and literally put out tips for how to have sex with random partners in the midst of a pandemic. Want to make sure we're safe. But as offensive as it is to hear stories like these from all around the world, the reality is as Christians proclaiming a Christian message to the unsaved world, we are the most offensive beings in all of history, and our message is dripping with hate. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And Paul in Romans 9, comparing Gentiles accepting salvation by faith and Jews trying to attain righteousness through works of the law, quoting Isaiah 8 says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The Bible in general, the gospel specifically, which necessarily requires the discussion of sin and repentance, is offensive. There's no way around it. Man loves sin. This is why those that are the most accepting, the most loving among us, you know, the LGBTQ community, do not love nor accept a worldview that speaks of sin and repentance. That's just foolishness to them. They are much more enlightened and they are much wiser than the obsolete, hateful, closed-minded worldview preached in our Bible. The world can't see that what's being preached is actually loving. They want their sin. We all, in our humanness, want our sin. But the Christian knows that sin equals eternal death. The unregenerate knows that sin equals fun and freedom and pleasure. But the Christian knows that sin equals slavery, sadness, depression, anger, and hopelessness. The lost world believes themselves to be enlightened, that love is love, that gender is a construct, that to say otherwise is silly because, well, not science exactly, but new science, new think, emotional science. That's the wisdom of the age. But the Christian knows, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The West has generally been insulated and isolated from any sort of real persecution, and I'll be honest, pretty thankful for that. But the cracks in the dam are starting to show and grow and join together. The unsaved world has waited and tolerated us uh, just about long enough. Their patience and acceptance is wearing thin. It's coming to an end. And when we see in the enlightened nations, the advanced stable nations, nations that were the birthplace of Catholicism, then the birthplace of the Reformation, nations that were founded on Christian principles, when we see people being arrested for praying in their minds, when we see churches shut down, fenced up, and persecuted for trying to follow their religious belief, when we see court battles arguing if the Bible is just too offensive these days, and when we see Bible editors modifying the language to make it more inclusive, and so-called Protestant churches exchanging the word of God for the word of man? Well, the bloom is off the rose, isn't it? John 15, 18 through 25 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. 
but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. The reality is the Crown Prosecution Service is correct. The 55-year-old cancer-surviving veteran Special Forces Mr. Dunn was offensive. No matter how he said it, it, it was what he said. It's hateful and offensive and, yes, even inappropriate for speaking in public. The words, the context, the intent, the implication, the actual meaning of the words are offensive to those with blinded eyes, to those that love their sin and hate their Creator. We should be thanking God for every day that we are not severely persecuted. We should be asking for God's blessing and protection on those that are face-to-face -face with the anger and hatred, the governing authorities and the legal systems. We should be asking for courage to stand for what we know to be true if and when the time comes. We're not all called to be street preachers, but some of us are. We're not all called to protest abortion clinics, but some of us are. We're not all called to run for positions of leadership, but some of us are. Most of us are called to live so-called normal lives, and in our normal lives, there should be no question about what we believe and why. By our actions, our words, our lives, we should not be ashamed of what we believe. And assuming the current trend keeps moving in the same direction, there will come a time that praying before a meal in a restaurant, or reading our Bibles in the office at lunch, or speaking to someone about hope in Christ in the face of personal turmoil, well, all of that will be deemed hateful and inappropriate. Are you prepared for these times? <laughs> Am I prepared for these times? Let's get about the business of preparing because these times are coming whether we're ready for them or not. Unless I end on a somber note, know this, the world is temporary, right? Persecution is temporary. As Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The worst this world can do to any of us is to take our lives and then we spend eternity with our Savior. Now, he gave his life for us. We can and should be willing to strive to glorify his name with our lives in whatever way we can, while we can. Welcome back to the American Genesis. This is episode 33 of our look at the founding documents of the United States, which is part 15 in our discussion of the amendments to the Constitution. Last week, we discussed the most vile, wretched, evil, disgusting, just gross amendment of them all. No, not the drinking one. God, good grief. I, you know, I told you last week, the time to get help is now, okay? No, Amendment 16 was the income tax amendment, remember? And as I said last week, that reminded me I need to do my taxes. Well, I did my taxes. I just need to finalize and submit them and adjust my withholdings in my paycheck as they're not quite right. Close. They need to be tweaked a bit so I don't have to pay in. Not overly happy right now, but that's okay. Ideally, you should come out with zero to pay back and zero in a refund. Remember, an income tax refund, although a seemingly nice bonus of cash, is actually you overpaying your taxes and loaning the government your money for them to make interest off of. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like the government, and I certainly don't trust them with my money, and I don't want to loan them my money to help them make money. Anyway, that Dave Ramsey-type thing aside, it's not the point here. We would hope that today we'll talk about how they came to their senses and repealed the 16th or clarified it or something like that, but, but no, no. We'd, uh, we'd hope that Amendment 17 would at least be a good one for the country, an amendment that redeems our governmental overlords, but uh, no, no, not, uh, not, really, not really that either. So... Running on a high from just amending the Constitution with the 16th, the 17th was proposed to the states only three years later. Unlike the first 15 amendments where we could ask, hey, what does this amendment do for us? Uh, this is another amendment where we ask, hey, what does this one do to us? As always, let's start by reading the text. Quote, 
The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state, elected by the people thereof, for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. The electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislatures. When vacancies happen in the representation of any state in the Senate, the executive authority of such state shall issue writs of election to fill such vacancies, provided that the legislature of any state may empower the executive thereof to make temporary appointments until the people fill the vacancies by election as the legislature may direct. This amendment shall not be so construed as to affect the election or term of any senator chosen before it becomes valid as part of the Constitution. Okay, we'll look at some of the language here in just a moment, but the bottom line is that this is the amendment that moved the election or selection of the senators from the legislature of the state to the popular vote of the people. Additionally, if a vacancy occurs between the election dates, the executive, the governor of the state, still makes that temporary appointment, but now instead of that being temporary until the legislature meets again, it's temporary until the next state election, when a special election will be held to fill that seat for the remainder of the term. Now, a nefarious governor on either the right or the left could use something like this to get someone in that was popular then make it lucrative for him to vacate that seat and allow that governor to get their person in uh, for up to two years uh, that they really wanted in in the first place. Now, that was and still is the theory behind the election of John Fetterman, the Frankenstein-looking stroke victim with severe complications that beat out Dr. Oz, a horrible choice, uh, for a Senate seat in Pennsylvania. The theory is that he'll either die or at least he'll vacate or he'll be forced out of the seat and the governor will appoint his Marxist wife in that spot since she'd be worse for the country overall, better for the Democrats, worse for the country, and she could have never been elected on her own. Anyway, besides that uh, little conspiracy theory, which would totally never happen, could someone tell me the difference between the Senate and the House now? In fact, everyone is now elected by popular vote, from dog catcher all the way up to the president. Now, I know that we aren't a democracy. We're a representative republic, meaning that we vote as part of the popular vote, and then the electors in each state decide how they'll vote for the president but the original way the Constitution was set up to conduct elections and appoint people is not how it works today. Originally, the people would vote directly for their local and state government. They would also vote directly for the House of Representatives, the House literally being the branch that is supposed to represent the needs and desires of the people. Now, the state legislatures were appointed by the people through the popular vote, they would then appoint the senators. The people did not directly vote for the senators. The Senate was the branch of the federal government that represented the interest of the state itself, which may or may not align with the current desires of the people, but would hopefully be the best thing long-term for that state. The state legislature would also appoint electors based on the number of senators and representatives in the state. And these electors had the job of casting their votes for the president. They were supposed to be independent voters that would look at the popular vote, look at the needs of the state, look at the candidates, and then vote for the best option for president and then also for vice president, which may or may not align with the state legislature's desires or the people's desires. See, there were multiple layers of voting, of independence. Each group had a specific focus to try to create the best state and the best country they could for the people. But now, due to the passage of the 17th Amendment, due to changes in the selection of electors, we are basically a shadow democracy. The popular vote votes for the local and state. It votes for the House. It now, thanks to this amendment, votes directly for the Senate. And now each party has a slate of electors that they've decided on. And whether you know it or not, when you vote for president, you're voting for his or her slate of electors as well. So the popular vote votes for the electors. The only thing we don't vote for is the Supreme and some other court justices, the president's cabinet, and the heads of all these massive bureaucracies and agencies that probably shouldn't exist in the first place. 
Every level of independence, every stopgap measure, every point of either non or counter bias has been systematically removed. This is not a good thing. This is why we have massive and getting massiver pendulum swings in political party control. This also has removed the potential protections for the federal government just swallowing up the states because now every elected official is of the same ilk, voted in in the same way, all with the same theoretical mandate by the people. So, in 1912, the Congress proposed this amendment. They felt that there were a few problems with the system as originally designed, and these are, I guess, legitimate concerns. I won't argue that point. It, it was at least worth a debate. First, they were concerned that corruption in the state legislatures would result or was resulting in a sort of pay-for-play kind of senatorial appointment. Whoever could lay the most grease on the palm of the legislatures could be a senator. That said, from 1857 to 1900, only three appointments were investigated for impropriety, and only 10 cases total were alleged and contested in more than 100 years of application of the original system. So was it a problem that needed fixing? No. No, no it wasn't. Now, would it be a problem today? Yeah, possibly. I'm, I'm not sure that we'd even notice with the sandbox that we're playing in today. But, but yeah, I mean, possibly it would be. Now, the other issue had a bit more ground to stand on. But in my opinion, just a very small bit. The problem was theoretically a deadlocked state legislature. In the case of disagreement at the state level, it was possible, and it did happen a few times, that the state would be delayed, sometimes for a couple years, sending their Senate representation to Congress. Now, to me, this is not a problem that needs fixing either. What that tells me is that the people in the next election needed to vote out the troublemakers in their state and get people in there that align with what they're wanting. That wouldn't guarantee a deadlock wouldn't happen, but it would be a constant process of flushing out the bad and plopping in the somewhat not quite as bad. And if your state didn't have representation in the Senate, well, I'm sorry, I, I don't know of anywhere that said you that your state had to have senators there, or more importantly, that without all senators present, the Senate can't do any work. So again, this wasn't a problem that needed fixing. Well, regardless, this push for a popular election of the Senate wasn't new in 1912. In fact, the push started almost 100 years earlier, but it really gained steam right before the turn of the century. The Populist Party, remember, they were leftists, socialists, so, you know, not good people, added a direct election uh, clause to their party platform. In 1908, Oregon passed a law in their state that would use the popular vote to elect their senators, which, by the way, I'm actually for. I think the state should have the right to try things. Nebraska soon after followed suit. Ten states had popular votes for senators that served as unofficial kind of a poll of popular sentiment that would help inform the state legislators as to who the people wanted as their senators. By 1910, there were 31 state legislatures calling for the direct election of senators, which is kind of ironic as that would literally pull power away from the state legislatures. And why would they do that? I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. Maybe they didn't want the responsibility. Maybe they didn't want to have to answer to their constituents as to why they selected who they did. Maybe they didn't want the hassle. Maybe they saw it as an impediment to their re-election. I'm really not sure of the reasoning, but no matter how I slice it, it appears to be due to a weaker caliber of politician, a weaker caliber of man that just wanted to avoid anything that might harm their little sphere of power. I could be wrong. Probably not, but I could be wrong. As a result of the political pressure, an amendment proposal was made in 1911. After much debate, after multiple edits, the Senate approved it in April of 1912, the House approved it in May of 1912, and it headed to the states. 36 states at this time were needed to ratify this amendment to adopt it as law and certify it into the Constitution, and that number was reached just under a year later in April of 1913. Now, as points of a trivial pursuit-esque interest, uh, as I've done before, Louisiana approved it over a year later in June of 1914, 
Alabama approved it just a shade under 88 years later in April of 2002, Delaware in July of 2010, Maryland in April 2012, and Rhode Island in June of 2014. Utah flat-out rejected the amendment in February of 1913 and has never looked back, and Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Mississippi, South Carolina, Virginia, Alaska, and Hawaii have never even considered it. Now, backing up a little bit, let's quickly walk through the language, make sure that we cover what's actually said in the amendment. The first of the three paragraphs is the major change, with one word changed, and that was sandwiched between exactly what was stated in the Constitution originally. It was taken directly from Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution, and in there we read, quote, The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state chosen by the blank thereof for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. Now, in the Constitution originally, that blank was filled in by the word legislature. In the amendment, that blank is now filled in by people. The second paragraph has to do with the vacancy process. The basic idea is the same. The state executive, the governor, would appoint a replacement. But rather than the next meeting of the legislature taking up the business of appointing a full-time senator for the rest of that term, the temporary appointment would stay in office until the next election in the state where the people would vote for the next senator. The third paragraph simply states that the amendment would not be retroactive to those already appointed to the Senate. Now, just as the call for a change to popular vote elected senators started with some proponents and gradually grew into what amounted as a, a movement or a mandate to make it happen, there are also a few that would like to see the 17th Amendment repealed and the system placed back into the hands of the state legislature. Ben Sass, a former Republican senator from Nebraska, called in 2020 for the repealing of the 17th Amendment. Now, Sass was a very strong Republican in many ways, but at least at the end was not a Trump fan, and he voted with the contingent to impeach Trump for the second time. Of course, by doing that, he quickly fell out of favor with the Republicans for this move. Now, although I disagree with his uh, voting for impeachment, and I disagree with his dramatic, scared little girl viewpoint of the January 6th, mostly peaceful ambling by the people through the People's House with some rabble-rousers, mostly plants and leftist instigators, I still think that his general policy positions were really solid. Now, he resigned from the Senate in January 2023 after being elected the second time to accept the presidency of the University of Florida. Anyway, and no, that's not a digression, so I'm not going to say that. I wanted you to know where he was coming from so that you know that in 2020 he called to repeal the 17th Amendment. I think that was a good call. Now, in his discussion of why, he hypothetically brought the writers of the Constitution to the present day, saying, quote, I suspect they'd also be stunned by the deformed structure of our government. The Congress they envisioned is all but dead. The Senate, in particular, is supposed to be the place where Americans hammer out our biggest challenges with debate. That hasn't happened for decades, and the rot is bipartisan. Disagree with that. I challenge you. Now, he argued that the debates inside of the Senate would be more productive and would be a fight for the rights of each state if the states controlled who served in the Senate rather than just a nationally focused partisan farce elected by the popular vote. He also wanted cameras removed from the Senate so they would be more focused on their work rather than grandstanding for the population. He proposed requiring the senators to actually show up for debate rather than using standing committees. He wanted to implement a 12-year term limit in the Senate, and then he wanted the requirement of the senators to have dorms in D.C., which would force the senators to live in those dorms when they were in D.C., rather than, I guess, commuting or doing whatever, wherever, with whomever. Now, Sass wasn't wrong, in my opinion, and frankly, like I said, I, I totally agree with him. The 17th Amendment was a solution looking for a problem. It did nothing to help anything and was actually damaging to the multi-level checks and balances the framers of the Constitution put in place to try to force debate, force gridlock, and only allow what is beneficial for the country generally and the states and people specifically through to actual law. Uh, but here we are. 
And here we are at the end of another amendment and at the end of another episode of the American Genesis, looking at the amendments to the Constitution. Now, in the next episode, we'll look at what is probably one of, if not the most controversial amendment ever, and how it should illustrate the fact that just because something looks like a good idea on the surface doesn't mean it won't backfire and uh, backfire massively in the long run. But for now, I'll just say, until next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Can you believe that it's nearly Easter, almost April? Is it just me, or has this year just been flying by? As of the recording date, right now, as I sit, staring at a microphone and a screen, there are only 270 shopping days left until Christmas. Have you got your list ready? I mean, we're getting close here. There. If you haven't been working out, let this be your little shot in the arm, your little nudge. I mean, your heart must be fluttering like a hummingbird after that little bit of stress. Anyway, since it's almost Easter and we all know what Easter is really all about, Charlie Brown, let's hop to it. <laughs> right? Pun? Eh, okay, well, here we go. Have you ever heard of the Overton window? If you've ever done the diet and exercise thing, I guarantee you've experienced the Overton window. This is a political concept, generally, that basically says that if you want to move the populace to a certain opinion, you propose something way past what you want. Like, let's say you want to legalize recreational marijuana. You propose decriminalizing all drugs and releasing all criminals being held on drug-related crimes. Well, then the entire population loses their minds. Well, I mean... <laughs> Not the entire, there, there's some that actually would be all for that, shockingly, but the outcry would come from most. You then capitulate, you come hat in hand, you apologize profusely, admit that that was just a crazy idea, and then you come back with, you know, just a, a little idea of decriminalizing recreational Mary Jane. And people, still trying to catch their breath from a crazy drug policy idea, are more likely to say, oh, yeah, I mean, well, that makes sense. It, boom, you've got your agenda item. That's not a perfect analogy, but you get the idea. You push so far past what you want that the thing that you actually want seems sane, even though it's crazy compared to where you are right now. Okay. When it comes to weight and weight loss, I think I'm in the Overton window stage. As I was gaining weight, at this point, I was like, ooh, Oh, I need to stop eating. I've got to do something after this one more trip to the buffet. But now that I'm coming back down from more bulkiness, since I'm still close enough to that point of feeling just awful from where I've been, I now feel really good. So maybe I'm fine, but I'm not. I still have a ways to go. It just feels like I'm okay because of how crazy outside of the window I went. Anyway... Last week was an okay week. That's all I'm trying to say. It was definitely better than the week before. Definitely not as good as past weeks, or as good as weeks need to be. But that being said, I was able to lose 2.4 pounds, bringing my total to 23.6 pounds down, an average of 2.15 pounds per week, putting me 7.1 pounds ahead of my goal pace. I know, a lot of numbers. My actual weight was 190.8 pounds, and if things go even just okay this week, I should be dipping my chubby toes into the 180s by next update. It's about 15 pounds to go. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago that I was potentially coming up on a four-pound loss week. I wasn't sure, but it kind of felt like it since, you know, some of the past weeks were smaller than the numbers, the calories said they should have been. Well, maybe this last week was actually that week, but I muted it with some hard caloric living. Yeah, that's my bad. But still, this is a nice dark green, solid green color for this goal still. Now, as for reading, I got to admit, I'm liking this new approach that I'm trying here. You know, having something that's 
less heady, shorter chapters or short individual sections that I can consume late at night or early in the morning without having to really focus and concentrate as hard. You know, it, they're not exactly uh, reading palate cleansers, as I call them, but they're lighter in, in subjects and lighter in content. So over the last week, I read another 52 pages in my deeper book, putting me about halfway through that one, and I finished a lighter reading book and started another one. So all totaled, I read 245 pages over the last week, putting me at 168% of my goal, nearly what I was at the end of January. So this goal is still a dark, solid green. Now, the book I finished was written by Valerie Neal, the curator, or at least she was at the time, I don't know about today, of the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. The book is entitled Discovery, Champion of the Space Shuttle Fleet. Okay, okay, wake up. I know, anyway, I know you're all excited here. This book gave an intro into the book and then the shuttle program and then Discovery, and then it covered briefly each one of the missions flown by Discovery. It had a lot of pictures in there, but uh, had a whole lot of information. And this is maybe not quite a coffee table size book, but it's a bigger book. So these are legitimate pages here. Um, it's really interesting. I mean, all the things that they did, the challenges they faced, the creativity of the crews, you know, that sort of thing. And, and all the, the places they went, right? The Mir, the uh, International Space Station. Um, and then it wrapped up with a summary of the final mission, the preparation to display, and then they moved to the museum. Uh, it was really good. And that was a 141-page book. I uh, read 124 pages of that last week to finish it up. And then I've already covered 69 pages in the next book. I've, I'll have that one done probably by this weekend, I'm guessing. Um, it's amazing what you can do when you don't blow an hour or two in dribs and drabs playing on the phone. You know, it's, it is amazing. Uh, as for my Bible reading, still ticking up. Uh, a couple more percent over my goal pace at 158.4%. Uh, again, I could have done better, but at least I'm keeping up with the current pace. And I'll say this, the more I read, the more I want to read. The more I miss it when I don't read on a certain day, and the more interesting it gets. I know that's probably a well-duh statement for many, but for those of us that struggle to read the Bible or to do it consistently, hey, I, I mean, I, I get it. Okay, but but maybe my experience can give you a little boost of encouragement to dive in and try. Now, I'm 11 weeks in, but I'd say read consistently for four weeks and see where you get and how you feel and how you think about it and then keep going. As for devotions, we're on a good roll with these. Uh, no need to stretch this out any more than I already have. Another week of hitting it every morning. This almost feels like it's becoming a habit, and that's a good thing, right? In fact, on my short stack of books to get to, one of the next is a shorter book on creating good habits for yourself. So, uh, so maybe I'm on the right track. We'll see what it says when I get to it. So this goal moved up a couple percent in, in goal pace as well to 119.1%, which keeps it as a nice, solid, dark green still. And that's it. That's the update. Now, in keeping with the season, here's a little joke that you can uh, take with you. And you will, you will use this with someone. What did the overly excited gardener do when he heard that spring was here? He wet his plants. Oh, you know you're laughing. Okay, bye.